This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we accidentally make it worse. You have a problem. You're looking for a solution that will get the community involved because it's too big and too time-consuming to do it yourself. Say you have a million Legos all over the floor of a building, a school building. You can't pick them up, so you want to get the students involved. You agree to give the students one free homework pass for every 10 Legos they pick up. It makes sense. You incentivize them to help you. But the students, they're smart. They figure out that all they have to do is purposely spill more Legos and hand them in, and theoretically never have to do homework ever again. Not only have you not fixed the Lego problem, but you've made it worse. There are now more Legos on the floor. This is called perverse incentive. And next to perverse incentives, we'll dive into Barbara Streisand's effect and the horseshoe theory of politics. And welcome to episode 64 of Game Theory, podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by two know-nothings. Absolutely um, nothing. Nothing. We know nothing at all. Nothing. I do know this. I have different levels of sick. Um, so there's level one is the man flu, which is I don't want to do anything today. Please feel bad for me. Level two, which is where I'm at today. It's a pretty serious level. Like we've turned up. It's I'm drinking tea instead of coffee. Wow, that's that is a pretty serious. Thing. I, yeah. I feel like number one is no my baseline whether I'm sick or not. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good way to think about it. I see no distinction between the man flu and just not wanting to do anything. I mean, that's just how I operate normally. Right. Number three is like I'm physically incapable of taking care of myself, which has happened a number of times. Uh, you were there, Christmas 2017, the H3N2 flu epidemic uh, that killed like many hundreds of thousands of people. I got it. That was significantly. Wor- I was vaccinated when I got COVID, but significantly worse than COVID. That was pretty scary situation. Actually, that was really shitty. Uh, and then bad. COVID COVID was bad. And then, but other than that, mostly I, I go between man flu and drinking tea. It's mostly, I found I get a lot sicker in the fall and that has, there's a strong correlation between how strong my immune system feels and how well Notre Dame football is playing. Yeah. And how much you had time. to drink on Sunday. Like, Oh, the Sunday scaries actually bled into like the time when the sun was down and now I'm also hung over. Yeah. Well, I'm starting to think that maybe I'm allergic to alcohol. Yeah. Because if I drink a lot of it, then I feel terrible for like a day afterward. You, yeah. You know, honestly, that's, there's something people should do some research into the effects of alcohol on the immune system. Um, people should figure it out or anything. <laughs> you got a, you got a good look going on yet again today. I, I yeah. feel like, so for those of you who are listening, Nick is wearing a very saturated red and blue yeah. plaid shirt. I'm talking like big checker square. It looks like mm-hmm. a red jail cell from like an old timey movie overlaid onto a really dark blue thing. And of course he's got the mustache. If you've seen us on YouTube recently, Nick's got the mustache going. I feel like, Nick, you look like if they did a live-action production of, like, the Berenstein Bears, you'd be, like, a very good character in costume for that right now. I look like I'm missing one thing to be from a number of eras. Like, I have the wrong shirt yes. to be from the 20s. I have the wrong haircut to be from the 70s. Like, it's almost works. It's And none of it's ironic. This is, this is just no. my best effort today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, well you're, uh, you subscribe to those, like, here, man, here's your clothes. I'm going to send it to you. And you I do. Wear what I tell you because it's good for you. Correct. Uh, they work. I, I regret to report that they work. I don't know which one you're using these days, and I won't I won't make you say it. But uh, now that this is a, a revenue generating uh, enterprise, um, maybe no free ads. Maybe we should. Dis- That's a subtle, <laughs> subtle brag, by the way. Player three, we couldn't have done it without you. We couldn't have done it without We, we did to- make it. Less than 1% of podcasts ever make it to the point where they generate revenue. Uh, we, I would estimate our net worth now officially from our Spotify ad campaign, which I do endorse. And you heard the ad already in the intro. Um, our revenue is, uh, can't retire yet. Um, but soon. Can they buy. say you should retire when your money makes more money than you do. And I think eventually we'll get to that point. We... I think could share a cocktail depending on where we went, but not in DC. No, no, we could, we couldn't share a cocktail in DC no. because we'd have to fill out a permit and I don't have $46 on me. So, <laughs> so, okay. We, today we are talking about unintended consequences, of course, which is where you want something not to happen. And by wanting that thing not to happen too much, 
the opposite thing happens. Uh, sometimes because people purposely are like these idiots and other times because they didn't, there were unintended consequences, which is different than people gaming the system, which we will, of course, talk about. A lot of this happened in Southeast Asia, uh, I think in India and in what used to be called French Indochina or something, what is right now, I believe Vietnam, we'll get into the details of that later. Um, but the, the purpose of this, Chris, is, is when you want something to happen and you're like, I'm going to incentivize this thing to happen. So then you do that thing and everyone's like, well, we're going to do the opposite of that. And it reminds me, I'm going to get ahead of this now, because if our dad listens, we're going to have to deal with this fucking text later. <sighs> My dad. What's up, dad? Our dad. I was raised Seinfeld. You know when people say I was raised Catholic, which means I don't practice anymore, but they made me go, this is, I was raised Seinfeld. You're so recovering can, Seinfeld. Yeah, I can, I can quote scripture. I don't go, I mean, I don't celebrate Festivus. <laughs> you, you, you do to, you know, you do I, it to I, You know what? I actually only celebrate Festivus, I think is the appropriate joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you air grievances as often as anybody else. But Correct. The feats of strength really is, I would say, your, your biggest uh, weakness. Thank guess, you. Appreciate that. When it comes to celebrating Festivus, you're, you're normally a, Pretty celebratory type of guy. So yeah, I have mirth. when it comes to Festivus, I think we, we, we generally have a good time. Yeah, Festivus is, like. is mirthy. But the Seinfeld episode I'm thinking of, Chris, is the one where George is very famous. It's probably a top five episode of all time, actually. It's the one where George just decides, my life sucks. I'm going to do the exact opposite. I forget the sandwich he orders. I'm sure you'll be able to quote it. Tuna on rye or something. You get, yeah, he gets an egg salad sandwich on white every day, on wheat every day or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, tuna salad on rye. With a cup of tea. And something else. Cup of tea. Yeah. And so that, he, that then he gets a job for the Yankees and he asks a girl out. I'm 30. I live with my parents. I don't have a job. No, well, he's so he doesn't say his age. He's like, ah, my name's George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. And she's like, hey. <laughs> works out really well for him. Yeah, exactly. And he works with the Yankees for a number of years. Uh, and then Seinfeld, uh, of course, Larry David accidentally developed the storyline and then had to nix that in the bud. So we could yep. be more nothingness. But that's the point of the episode today. We are George Steinbrennering so hard today when the opposite of what we want to happen uh, happens. Has this ever happened to you? Is anything ever? Because I have thought about occasionally writing a cover letter that's like cover letters are stupid. You'll never hire me. But then I think that they'll just take me at my word and just not hire me. I, I don't know if I've ever, I'm sure I've responded to this. So the, so the game theory term that we're talking about is called the perverse incentive. And that's, that's like a questionable, like, we're not very online, but we're online enough to know that like once you start saying words that sound like that, then you attract a lot of unwanted attention for a <laughs> yeah. lot of the wrong reasons. Yeah. But there, that is an actual term. Uh, so I don't know if I've ever been like the victim of a perverse. Like I've, I've never tried to incentivize people to behave one way and gotten a worse result because I'm never really in a position of, of like I need people to do things for. I'm not, I'm not like a manager of people. Sure. I don't usually do that kind of thing. But I'm certain that I have responded in one way or another that is not it's not within the the spirit of the law, so to speak. Yeah. The the, the perverse incentive it, it is probably probably the most prominent example. Like you said, comes from South Asia, uh, and it's called the Cobra Effect. Yes. So you mentioned uh, India. India. This took place during uh, British Raj. And in Play Three, if you don't know about the British Raj, you should definitely spend some time. Uh, at least go over the Wikipedia. Like, there's a good Wikipedia link here that we're going to include sure. in the show notes. Yep. And and the the basic story is that the British Raj was like the British Empire ruling India from 1858 to 1947. And in the aftermath of that, it basically gave birth to the country of India, the country of Pakistan, which was split into East and West Pakistan. There was, I mean, just nonstop conflict on religious grounds, on ethnic grounds. Uh, and in this, like, wake of this huge, almost a century of colonization uh, by the British Empire of, of this entire subcontinent, a uh, lot, of, lot of bad things. It's, it's really like colonization 101. Like, here's why colonial rule is bad. Yeah, they did not uh, well, win the way, revolution the way that we did. They did not figure it out as quickly. Or maybe one might say that the British were like, hey, let's not do that again. Let's just be significantly meaner right away. Well, I mean, the the state of play on the subcontinent was a lot different than it was yeah. in the colonies, too. I mean, Britain was like a maritime power and you know, colonizing in the 1600, in the 17th century and 18th century uh, was a lot different than their Central Asian, South Asian colonial rule uh, almost a century later. Right. Uh, of course, you know, the British Empire spanned the entire globe, and there are a lot of different reasons for the different results like well, like why aren't there more like united states of americas that threw off the british yoke well i mean 
a lot of the countries that Britain colonized are independent today, but their periods of revolution, their period of gaining independence looks very, very different. And one of the, one of the big consequences, I think, is that uh, the places that the British were are carved into like clearly definable countries that don't really necessarily match very well with like the ethnic populations or like the native yeah, populations. Yeah, no shit. Shouts to whoever invented Iraq where there are three groups of ethnic people who hate each other. What a brilliant way to design a country. Let's just put them all in one border. Great. This will be yeah, fine. Yeah, and the, stru the structures of governance don't match either. Like like top-down democracy under like a British parliamentary system isn't necessarily like the most appropriate system of governance for say sub-Saharan African countries wherein like the, the society is structured fundamentally differently. This is not a discussion about like the geopolitics or like the systems of governance of post-colonial countries in Africa or South Asia. But what it is, is a highlight of the way that bad government leadership and a disconnect from responsible policy can result in really, really, really big problems for people who are trying to uh, solve what ostensibly is like a small to medium-sized problem. Yeah. So the Cobra effect. This is great. Well, this is objectively this is hilarious. Just incredible. Yeah. So the, the, there's this is a term coined by this economist named Horst Siebert, uh, and it's based on this story of what happened in India during the British Raj. So the British government was worried about uh, pervasive cobras running through the while well, slithering through the streets of, De of Delhi, the city of Delhi, and in order to try to cull the number of cobras, they thought, well, the most effective means is by having people kill them. So knowing that people respond to incentives. It wasn't like you need to kill X number of Cobras, otherwise you're going to go in prison. That, that's not a, that, that's a way to incite conflict. That's not going to get a response. Instead, what the British did was offer a kind of bounty or like a reward system for if you kill X number of Cobras, we'll pay you X number of you know, whatever currency, whatever the currency was in the Raj at the time. And they thought, okay, this is great. This is going to generate a really good response and we're going to be able to call the Cobra problem. But the issue that the British didn't consider was that people respond to incentives in a way that's going to make a sustainable system of payouts for them. So instead of people just going out and hunting cobras out of the goodness of their hearts to try to get a little cash from the government and solve the problem of cobras, what they did was start breeding the cobras so they could generate income. Because if you have a steady supply of cobras and you're able to turn in the cobras for the bounty, you can have a steady stream of income. And the end result was that after the government became aware of the program, they after the government became aware that people were breeding more cobras to try, to would make the problem worse, they ended this like cobras for bounty program, and so people had no more reason to keep the cobras. They set them free, and there was a larger cobra population after the program was instituted than before it began. Classic yeah. example of people responding to an incentive and making the problem worse. Yeah, and like it's uh, I mean, what do you what do you, I mean, you gotta you gotta make a living, man. And you're like, wait, so you're just gonna give me money to kill cobras? And like, they this is not exclusive to India. This happened in Hanoi as well with rats, but this time yep. it was worse. They would cut the tails off to prove that they were dead rats. They didn't have to be dead rats. They could still use them to breed if they didn't have a tail, which is what they did. It got crazy. So um, this is objectively hilarious. Uh, the only way to get rid of animals is to have natural predators and eating them. And fun is the only way to incentivize murder of other animals. Otherwise, like humans are just going to breed them. Of course, we are capable of doing that. And that's what happened, which I think is amazing. It is so funny. However, cobras are super duper deadly. Some of them are. Uh, and I imagine that the governors were like this. Who you're so stupid to do this. Yeah. Why not just like pay someone to go do it themselves? It's like their job. I'm a cobra hunter. That would be better, right? Yeah, so if there if there are any experts on the British Raj, especially with with respect to this specific anecdote, please reach out and, and, and correct us on the record. Because what this seems like to me is a classic case of an out of touch colonial empire thinking it it, it knows best or mm -hmm. it uh, it knows what's good for you, colonists. So mm -hmm. go ahead and do this thing that we're participate in this program that we've established and your life is going to be better. The problems are going to be solved and the benevolent government of the British empire is going to show you what a good life it can give you. And it, it just totally blows up in their face. And I, I don't know how well connected that is to like the other larger, more systemic problems with the British Raj. Right. But I do know that it's directly connected to game theory. I mean, it, the, the premise that people respond to incentives is true. People yep. do behave according to what their expected payout is. But it also fails to account for other like systems of trying to perpetuate 
positive incentives. I mean, that's that's not like a bias thing. It's not like the people of Delhi or the people of India were like malicious, like, ah, oh, we'll show the government we're going to breed more cobras than there have ever been. They were responding exactly to the incentive. And so you, you got to consider what the entirety of the system is going to look like. It's not enough to just like put a carrot out in front of somebody and expect them to you know, try to chase down the carrot. Uh, there are some creative ways to uh, perpetuate positive reinforcement. And in this case, it was pretty obvious in hindsight. Yeah, and I it's funny because if you go on the Wikipedia page and TikTok rabbit holes and Twitter rabbit holes, this happened um, a long time ago. And there are lists of it happening since. Like people are not... Learning their lesson, which I guess brings us back to last week's episode. Let's call it what was Silicon Valley Bank. In the time since we dropped that episode, by the way, a lot of you listened to that. Thanks for joining us for that show. Um, the situation has gotten worse. It seems like the federal government stepped in, but then now, from what I understand, the Swiss are involved and they suck and they're not going to take a bailout from another bank. And now uh, everybody well, they were, is... They were acquired. Yes. So Credit Suisse was acquired. But they didn't want it originally. They well, were trying of course to, they didn't want it yeah, uh-huh. So now anyway, the last update that I heard was that uh, a bunch of CEOs and bigwigs from Wall Street were in Omaha to meet with Daddy. And for those of you that don't know who Daddy is, Daddy is Warren Buffett. Anytime something goes wrong for one of these banks, he, he manages and I think he owns most of Berkshire Hathaway, which is an organization that does money stuff. I don't know. That's for the business people. But anytime something happens, they call daddy. And when things are really bad, they go visit daddy. And I'm calling him this on purpose because like, let's, you know, they're, they're his colleagues until it's time for money. And then he's like, Oh, you like my seven to 10% returns for 50 years. Interesting. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Would you like me to buy your bank? Because I am looking at the balance sheet and you can fuck off. He mm -hmm. notably didn't really help any of them in the beginning of 2008. He was like, mm. Not you people. No way. I make money. You lose money. No, thank you. And then I think he ended up helping, helping like Morgan Stanley or something. But they were all there, which is what happened in 2008. Like, Warren, um, we would like uh, uh, a treat seat, please. Please, Warren, please. Please like us. And he's like 90. And he won't go to New York. Yeah, he old. makes them co come to Nebraska, which is fucking hilarious. I love that someone can big dog those guys. Well, I think they secretly love it. Too. I think it's like a, they get, you get a little bit of like tourism about little people yeah. and then all the main characters who have like an origin story somewhere out in the middle of nowhere out in flyover country can go out and revisit their hometown at a time of crisis and consult with the guru while still maintaining touch with the local people and they get to eat really tasty steak <laughs> also owned by warren buffett and like it, it it's a, a big wag the dog thing that I mean, it doesn't happen in any, I don't know of any other industry that really has this kind of like client patron relationship that <laughs> Warren Buffett has with financial institutions. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, the per the perverse incentive in this case is I, I think it's closer to the bailouts. It's le it has yeah. less to do with Warren Buffett and more to do with yes with like like in two thousand eight, a lot of people were very concerned about establishing a precedent for bailing out large banks that were doomed mm -hmm. to fail. Right, and th this is a far oversimplifying things, but I remember at the time in like 2008 and 2009 giving like debate speeches about this. And the, the question on a lot of people's minds was, well, if we bail out these banks now, and even if we pass regulation, what's to stop them from making irresponsible decisions in the future? Because they know that they can just get a lot of money in, in return for making mistakes. And like the people who have to pay for it are not the people who work for the bank. Literally nothing. Yeah. And, and I remember at the time also drawing a connection to, what is another classic example of the perverse incentive? And that's the, the that's the welfare trap. Yep. So I uh, think the, the basic idea is that the U.S. has like certain social safety nets like Medicare, like uh, income protection, uh, unemployment. And the welfare trap is when a person, for whatever reason, is completely dependent on government benefits and they don't have any, any real prospects of self-sufficiency. So like if you file for unemployment and you get a certain number of tax credits or you get a certain kind of uh, income relief for like having children or living in a certain area, like what it depends on where a person lives and what the local statutes are. Uh, but the idea is that if somebody gets on welfare and they get paid a lot more money to stay on welfare than they would looking for a job or like contributing to the contributing to society in some way, then they're just going to continue to take government benefits. I mean, it, it, it's, there was like a flash in the pan moment for that early in the pandemic. You remember that? Yeah, of course. I mean, it wasn't just flash in the pan. It was everybody like the Trump bucks and then nobody had to spend any money because 
everything was close. You could just kind of stay home and kind of keep it locked down. And there was this like a good hunky dory vibe, which they had to do because nobody could, people who had to work in service industries, they just didn't have jobs. So that was a bailout. And I saw that as necessary, but that's exactly what happened. And it lasted for a while. Businesses got bailed out. Uh, individuals got bailed out. And certain political parties thought that individuals were the only ones that were bailed out. But businesses were also bailed out without having to earn money. And there was fraud involved in there as well. I will tell you this. I don't know if I've ever disclosed this to you. Uh, here's an anecdote for you. Um, so because of my eye surgeries, which are pretty substantial, and like I'm a donor recipient, and we'll get into that at a later date. But the point is that I am technically, legally, factually disabled. I have a government-recognized disability that makes it very difficult for me to work in certain situations, and I risk my health in certain ways. And the work that I do very much involves my eyes, and so I put it at risk a little bit. Either way, I am able to collect disability, full disability for my age forever if I want to. But, and this is, I need to clarify this with a, because I have caseworkers, I have a number, everything. What they told me was that you can get disability, but if you ever want to work, you come off it and you can't go, you can't go back to the workforce and you can't go back on disability. From what I understood in the state of Pennsylvania, which is where I lived at the time. And I thought, well, that is fucking crazy because what you're saying to, because to me right now, like I'm in a relationship and I have the ability to earn money and I want to be in the workforce, but if I needed it, then I have it forever and I can't not have it anymore. That to me was wild. And so this is exactly the, the kind, I understand like why you would do it because people would game the system, but also, I could take it and never work again, despite being kind of able to for a long time. Yeah. And look, this isn't to discuss any of the actual value of the stuff that you've produced. Because, sure. I mean, let's be real. Yes. Uh, super important. This podcast is going to win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> yes. It'll for peace. be its own category. For peace. For no, yeah, peace prize. <laughs> Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, Nobel Peace of Shit Prize. But we... We can win economics. We... <laughs> Are we are approaching this issue. Speaking of the economics, we are approaching this issue from the point of view of what people do and don't respond to in terms of incentives. And you know, you, you, you used the term there: people game the system. Like I, I used to think, like, and I, I think it's not unreasonable to approach the worldview with this kind of realistic look at, like, look, people are going to take the path of least resistance. People are going to take the easy way out. Right. And I used to think, like, well, you know, if you're not working hard for the sake of working hard, then you're just being lazy or you're wasting time and money and resources and all this stuff. And that may be true, but it's also true that it would be irrational. It would be irresponsible not to respond to a system of incentives that exists. Yes. And I, I think, you know, when it comes to like political issues about like whether we should or shouldn't institute XYZ social safety net policy, whether it's anything from like contentious issues like reparations to like veterans affairs and veterans compensation and whatever, anything in between. The question comes down to, are we creating an incentive structure that's going to put people in a welfare trap? Are we going to create an incentive structure that is perverse and is going to generate net social harm because this isn't a sustainable system or it's going to make a larger structural problems worse? And I think when it comes to making policy, answering those questions on a case-by-case -case basis is, is the best way to do it. But really, it's it's not a question of like, it, it's not a matter of condemning somebody's individual psychology or behavioral decision making. It's not a question of like someone's moral fiber, whether they're taking welfare or disability or whatever the case is. It's a matter of what the most rational thing to do is in the system of decisions and payoffs. And, you know, that's that's what this podcast is all about. It, it we're, we're not out here to try to say, like, oh, yeah, people are the worst. You can't give them anything. Give them an inch, you'll take a mile. Right. What we are saying is that that is the world that we live in. Those are the rules by which we play. And so when it comes to generating incentives and considering, like, what the payoff structure of a given social policy looks like, it, it's not just a question of people's individual behavior. It's questions of balancing that, like, what people are rationally going to do versus what's like the desired social outcome from a given policy. Yeah. The, the Cobra effect is hilarious, but all these other ones, like they're, they're really, I mean, welfare is a really serious thing. Income protection is a really serious thing. The common good is not a trivial, it's not a joke. It's, it's an important consideration and perverse incentives are a part and parcel with every individual social welfare, welfare policy, I think. Yes. And you see that well, it's not, I mean, it's all over. Some of these really have long lasting effects. You see this one from 2004, Fannie Mae, they were under investigation by the government because their bonuses were too high. So in order 
to make it look like their bonuses weren't too high subject to earnings they lied about or they fudged numbers to make it look like the bank was earning more money. So they were incentivizing short-term gains to justify their bonus at the, at the behest of long-term gains. It's a perverse incentive. So to justify their bonuses, they'd made business decisions to make it look. So instead of earning a bonus based on what they were making, they they moved around what they were making to make it look like they earned their bonus. And then, you know, four years later, the economy shuts down. So that kind of thing can have global impacts. I would do want to pivot a little bit and add something else in. Um, oh yeah. The, the, well, we got to do a whole, we got to do a whole medicine series. Cause like the, the Medicaid, Medicare stuff is the exact same thing. You talk about the the welfare trap, but also the way that something called RVUs work. And if you don't know what an RVU is, that's a fun Google hole for you. A lot of people right we, now we are... We discussed that on the show, I think. We right? have. Yeah, we've discussed yeah. it. I mean, you can dive in deeper in how it works. But um, by the way, TikTok every, every year has some seasonal things that people get excited about. Remember last year, uh, my dear wife was on the show. We talked about Medical Match Day. Medical Match Day has become an international TikTok thing. This is the first year that TikTok really got into it like they get into like Bama Rush and all of these (laughs) Bama Bama Rush Rush. yeah yeah all of these people are like this is how people decide where they're gonna go doctor like yeah bro this has been happening under your nose in your country for over a hundred years you didn't even know so maybe we should do more more medical stuff so I do want to pivot to unintended consequences which feels similar but not quite because it's not incentivized uh the thing that I'm talking about there are many different versions of it but it's called for those of us nerds on the internet, the Barbara Streisand effect or the Streisand effect. So Barbara Streisand, she allegedly was a great singer. I don't know. I know her as the person that <laughs> South Park makes fun of. I don't know. I can't name a Streisand song. Wasn't she in a duet with Meatloaf? That's all I got for you. She was like like a duet with Meatloaf or? Yeah. From the show with the, with the, the guy. Was that Heath Ledger or was it Patrick Swayze? If Patrick Swayze. The whole the yes. girl up. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was Patrick Swayze. Dirty Dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that mean, like, anyway, I think that's who Barbara Streisand is. I don't know. South Park makes fun of her. That's all I got for you. But oh, this is so funny. Uh, so she's got this mansion. It's on a cliff in LA, right? Roll your eyes, obviously. So she's got this, she's got this mansion. It looked like there was going to be a, there, there was coastal erosion and that her house might fall into the sea. And like, I have this rule in my house. I tell the wife this, I tell everybody this. I love geology. Huge geology nerd. I still follow geologists on Twitter who only have like 70 followers. I love geology. Let me make something very clear to all of you. Water is undefeated. It will win every fight always forever. So if there's a house on a cliff, it will be going into the water. Will it happen in a hundred years? Maybe. Will it happen in a million years? Maybe. It will be going into the water. The water's either going this way or it's going that way, but it will win. All the glaciers and mountains you love, water is undefeated. So her house is on a cliff. Water's winning the battle, as is the most predictable thing of all time. House is starting to fall into the ocean. They take a picture of the house. It was like a drone or a plane or somebody takes a picture of this house. Barbara Streisand doesn't want people knowing where she lives and what her house looks like. So the, the photographer, Kenneth Adelman, sold the picture for $50 million because Barbara Streisand sued him to get it taken down. It's it's incredible. She she sued him in the Superior Court of uh, the L.A. County, like the West District uh, in L.A. County, and it's he was taking this picture as part of like a California erosion government yeah. thing. Yeah, it was it was like a survey of the coastline of. It was not California. paparazzi. Did not know who lived there. No, it w- it wasn't just this like random thing. It was because of this like systematic approach to surveying the. The coastline of California mm-hmm. because water's undefeated and it's it's about documenting coastal erosion and so th- this image uh, that Kenneth Adelman took is was labeled image 3850 and you could see Barbara Streisand's uh, of her mansion in in like the center of the photo mm-hmm. and uh, she sued him and tried to get it like removed from the California Coastal Records Project and uh, she was uh, it, 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 like and here's the thing she didn't want people to know that she had like a mansion. This, this mansion, yeah. So she sued yeah. it not because it was copyright infringement or not because of any... She just didn't want this picture out there in the world. And two things happened. One, we learned about the Streisand effect. And two, we learned about the internet. Also, like water undefeated, internet is forever. This is essentially the first uh, receipt of all time. So when she sued, yeah. this photo becomes an official court document, at which point everyone's like, 
what the fuck is Barbara Streisand suing about? So instead of the photo, which had been viewed six times within a month, was viewed 450,000. Now I bet it's incalculable, the original file, to say nothing. Like it's in Wikipedia. We're looking at it. I would say hundreds of millions of total views. Yeah, it's it's amazing how much more she she wanted this suppressed for whatever reasons like where mm-hmm. she's trying to cultivate an image of somebody who's not like a California coastal elite blah 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 mm-hmm. and the act of her trying to suppress that generated the unintended consequence of everybody on earth we're talking about it is she this 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 suit was filed she filed this suit in December 2003 we're talking about it 20 years later yeah it's it's, it's, it's incredible page. how she she tried to suppress this information and and now it's never going to go away probably ever and like by the way, when when you first said streisand effect when we were first talking about like pitching this episode we i, I think i had like vaguely heard of the barbara mm-hmm. streisand effect i don't know but looking it up and doing the research unlocked like a primordial memory i mean this is like this is like pre-dancing baby Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, this is like the the proto internet. Like people are first starting to like get home computers, and that was when like LimeWire was running rampant through every teenager's like family computer. And the fact that this information has lasted so long, the fact that it's so prominent, everybody knows who. Everybody with like a taste of the internet knows what the Streisand effect is. I mean, it's it's a remarkable example of how trying to solve a problem can just create more of the problem can make yeah. the same problem worse and, in fact, unsolvable at this point. I think that for her it's funny because it's, it sucks, but it's also, like, not crazy and it's, it, it's funny. And it's, it, it taught us about the Internet and the ways of humanity. This is a study in true, actual scientific sociology, not, like, bullshit, I don't know what to study sociology, but, like, real sociology because it taught us about how human behavior is going to work. We have datum now, 450,000 in a month. Like, we know that they care this much more when there's a lawsuit and you're famous. But as this extends, now it has to be part of the thinking of people, which is fascinating to me because now we've gotten into a poker game. Like, how do you suppress information? Well, you don't suppress information by suppressing information. By trying to suppress information, everyone's go, it'll be like moths to a flame, which is what's happening. There's an entire list of these people on, on the internet doing things that people specifically wanted them not to do, but they're doing them just because they did it. Like a great example, in 2017, South Africa, what a great noble government that is. They wanted to ban a book called The President's Keepers because it detailed corruption of the current president. Well, once they said they wanted to ban a book because it details corruption of the current president and they banned it, everyone was like, I'll take a copy, please. I want to see what the fuck's in there. If you're that worried about it, you're trying to ban it. If they had not cared, do you know how many books have detailed information that turned out to be true later? Do you know how many podcast interviews have come out where people have probably perjured themselves and nobody can go through it all? But as soon as they like, take that podcast off the internet, everyone's like, whoa, whoa. What's going on on that episode? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And I, it's interesting to compare this in a democratic society where like information theoretically is, unless it's like actual controlled government information, it's pretty much accessible to anybody with an internet connection. And compare that to like China. China has an open, China has an internet. China has a huge, huge, huge user base. China has people who are, really, really good at coding and doing whatever else. But they also have a massive state-controlled information suppression apparatus. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the way they do it is really remarkable. There's there's a podcast called uh, The Prince by The Economist. I want to give a shout-out to them. Okay. The Economist is is my go-to place for news and analysis. Best newspaper out there. Sure. And this podcast details some of the way that the state apparatus controls <coughs> and suppresses information. So Barbara Streisand tried to use U.S channels to get this image removed and try to stop people from seeing the fact that she had a mansion blew up in her face the way china approaches it is they essentially crowdsource people going in and like filtering out by time block like all right you work for the information suppression agency or whatever it's called you go in and look at every single web page on the internet from this timestamp to this timestamp, and it's like four minute increments yeah and they say any mention of these terms for the day, you delete that. Just go in, get rid of it. Uh, and they do. And it works really, really well. And the people, the, the, the game theory 
considerations there I think are really interesting because the people who are responding to incentives are the people who go work for that agency. It's not like they're going into people's homes and like they tackle them and like beat them to death until they comply and then they say like, all right, now your compliance is go work for the internet agency. Now they, they pay really well and a lot of times it's like college kids who are trying to, I don't know, do some extra work to earn money or they're recent graduates with you know, trying to advance their cyber skills or whatever. It's not like they're like, oh yeah, we really believe super hard in suppressing information. It's like the incentive structure that exists that was created by the state apparatus makes a situation wherein it's in my interest and my strong interest to be a part of this information suppression apparatus. And I I collect a paycheck. I make a better life for myself and my family. I make, I give myself prospects and the, the moral question of whether you should or shouldn't be complicit in a government trying to control the narrative about itself, that doesn't factor in as strongly as like, I get a lot more money. My future is secure. My income is secure. And so like comparing those two things, I think is really, really fascinating. And it shows that you have to get on top of information suppression very early on. Otherwise you generate unintended consequences. And I also think that controlling like the boundaries of the system is really important too, because everybody in the world outside of China knows a lot about Tiananmen Square and what happened in June 1989. Like that's a well-known, well-documented, like highly photographed event. And anybody could could explain it if they spent five minutes on the internet just Googling Tiananmen Square. In China, you cannot do that. They have such a strong control over that narrative because of the way that they've established this information control network, essentially, on the internet, that you could not go into China and search for information. Like, I want to know what happened at Tiananmen Square. I want the real story. And that's because they control the narrative within their own boundaries. So in their boundary, like inside the boundaries of the system that they've defined, the incentive structure is different than it is outside in the surrounding areas in a place where information is more free and more democratized and more accessible. So I think the, uh, the, the incentives that you generate and the consequences that you're able to produce, uh, that matters in the context of the system to a pretty significant degree. And, and, and I think information suppression is one of the clearest examples of that, certainly. Yeah, and if you know what's if you know something is being suppressed, all you want to do is figure out what's being suppressed and why. Like, there's just no way you can't be curious about it, right? Like, it's 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 almost as if there's nothing to gain from it other than the fact that like I want to know what's happening and and why this is happening and, and what's going on. But like, they the, the like Chinese government in this in, like this situation is counting on people needing to factor in their own self-interest above, you know, participating in the prisoner's dilemma for the greater good. Because at the end of the day, you you have to eat. We've talked about that with banks. It's exactly the same thing as a bank run. Like, I know this is bad. I have to have food or I will absolutely die. And not only that, it's it's not only are we going to help you, but we will hurt you. It's like a double, it's a double choice. It's like, it's not help us or don't help us. It's help us or we'll hurt you. Yeah, it, it, instead of instead of a flat landscape where you can walk to one area or walk to another area, it's you both have to descend into a valley and then climb over a mountain to get to whatever your objective is. Or you can just stay on this side and cooperate and you're good to go. And I, I think this is just like super, super fascinating. And I think there are there are a lot of examples of intended and, and unintended consequences. But you know, the, the democratization of information versus the suppression of information, I, th- I think it's just super interesting. And it, it really shows that game theory isn't going to produce the same results in all times and all places. I mean, the fact that people respond to incentives is an important factor, but it's not the end of the story. The, pa- the fact that people want to create certain outcomes and end up mistakenly creating other outcomes. That's true, but not always true. There are a lot of other factors at play. And so you, you can't look at this as like, Oh yeah, I understand perverse incentives. I know how to behave in all situations. I'm like, well, no, you, you, you have to couch that in the context of all the other stuff that we've like talked about on the show and all the other components of, of game theory. Yeah. So I, there's one other thing that I thought about when we were preparing for this episode that I think is also adjacent. So if we start with perverse incentives and the idea of this fundamental game theory that you want one thing, you incentivize it, but you actually incentivize people to take advantage of the incentive. It's like an incentive within an incentive. And then you look at unintended consequences where people just didn't think through the chess moves clearly. And as a result of that, they created a situation that they are no longer in control of. So they're, they're adjacent, but they're not quite related. It's not a tree. There, it's more like a Venn diagram. Like they have these things in common, but they, there's differences. There's one other theory that you probably know a lot more about than I do, and it's mostly in politics. It's called the horseshoe theory. 
which is that you're, oh, yeah. you identify as one thing and on this end of the political spectrum, but the actions that you want to take as a result of your I- identification become incredibly similar to the actions that your opponents or your adversaries or whoever's on the other side also want to take. I think we're seeing it play out now. There's a number of things that I think it's happening. I think a really good example of it is the attitude of lay people or plebeians to rich people. Now I think I think like we're seeing protests in France. That's socialized. That's a socialized country that's protesting for a socialistic reason. And people here are have their back. The people that you think would have their back, but also people that you might not think would have their back have their back. So I I think this is. I think and just explain what horseshoe theory is from someone who lives in DC. And you probably see it a ton. It has to be real. Yeah, horseshoe theory is a very common way that people describe political interactions. And the basic idea is that, you know, in the most simplistic terms, the political spectrum in modern America exists on a left to right (laughs) axis. And and that that applies historically, too. And on the left, there's like theoretically like pure communism where like the state apparatus doesn't really uh, it, it doesn't need to exist because people are contributing to a common whole and there's no such thing as ownership there's there's like possession but that that doesn't constitute ownership and uh there there are a lot of other details that go along with it and you have to consult Karl Marx for that but the basic idea is that people all share and contribute toward a common good and then in turn can benefit from the common good then on the right there's like state controlled uh like like that's like the extreme like fascism like the, the the government is the only it's the only way to like protect people from the state of nature. And so people are basically just subject to the whim of the government, but the government does good things. And so people benefit. Um, The, the horseshoe theory is that rather than seeing this as like a straight line thing where like one end is as far as possible from the other end, where like pure communism and pure like state control are on opposite ends. Really, the model looks more like a horseshoe where somewhere in the middle there's like moderates and then there's a right and a left wing that are closer in to their respective like logical conclusions. But then as you go farther and farther along, those ends actually tend to get closer together and they kind of like approach a circle. Uh, I forget what exactly the bills were, but there were bills related to uh, Ukraine that were mm-hmm. in consideration and debate on in early 2022. Of course, Russia invaded Ukraine in, in February 2022. So at the time, the U.S. government was considering how to respond, what level of aid to give, what type of aid to give. And when Congress was debating a lot of those bills, horseshoe theory was very, very clear. So anybody who's listening to this who has any political uh, interest and know-how knows what I mean when I say the squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's There's like four Democratic congresswomen who are like, they're, they're, like they're all millennials and they're all oh, okay. very, very left wing. Uh, I'm talking like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, 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 whoever else. I, I forget the other ones are. Uh, and then there's like, there's also regrettably popular right wing politicians like um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and sure. uh, Matt Gates. Yeah, Gates is the one that may have been a sex predator, allegedly, perhaps. Yeah, he's been credibly accused of being a sex predator. Uh, predator. Yeah, uh, profile, um, yeah. Anyway, the reason I'm comparing these two things is because they're a very, very clear demonstration of the horseshoe theory. All the other senators and representatives, when it came to passing like pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia legislation, bills, resolutions, whatever else, when it comes to showing government support for Ukraine, basically everybody else was on board because they recognized Russia as a very real, very serious threat to which we are opposed. Uh, but the extreme right-wingers like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, and the extreme left-wingers like the squad, they were the only people to vote against that legislation. Mm. They had their own, you know, what, they had their own whatever bullshit justifications. Uh, but the fact is that they were aligned. And, and, and here's the thing that really brings that together that makes it, that gives them common cause, why the horseshoe, like what's the connective tissue on the end of the horseshoe? The connective tissue is populism. I mean, it's a desire to appeal to like the basest motivations and like the the most emotional, most raw, uh, kind of most like primal impulses in people, rather than like generating good policy and having reasoned discussion. It's an appeal to like whatever the flavor of the month is for people. And in large in large political organizations like big urban centers with a lot of left wing population, or like large industries with a lot of people who are very right wing and pro business. There tend to be concentrations of people who are like very easy to manipulate with that kind of populist rhetoric. And 
the the common cause there is enough that it spans ostensibly to like what we consider both extremes of the political spectrum. And it demonstrates that they're actually like structurally a lot closer together than they would think. They just define themselves in, in opposition to each other. Uh, and really it's that definition that kind of completes the circle and puts them on the same side of a lot of issues when if it was a linear system, like they would never ever even come close to aligning because they're so far on the extremes. But because it's a horseshoe, they do. Yes. So, and there's a really famous example of this that was going viral, I think, uh, in the middle of the pandemic craziness. And, you know, there's how many things can we really uh, pay attention to? Um, So the Daily Something from overseas and Fox News were sharing an article about how a... The the Daily Something from overseas? The Dot, the Mail, the Telegram, whatever. The Daily Mail. So it's like some kind of British tabloid. Brits, people with their nose in our business. Uh-huh. Uh, the Daily Mail, I found it. So Fox News and the Daily by the way, Mail... The, by the way, the Daily Mail and Fox News are equally shitty tabloids. For those Everything is the same. It's all the gladiator game. We are all here for money. Yes. Uh, if you didn't pay for it, you are paying for it. Let me just tell you. So That's true. they both report on this. It's Centennial, which is close to where we grew up, kind of, in Denver. And they have a Families of Color Playground Night on Wednesdays at 4 p.m., uh, Mountain Standard Time, Mountain Daylight Time, doesn't matter. But they have they're, what they're going to do is have a night on the playground for uh, Black and Latino and Latina families to meet each other, as long along with Native American families, Indigenous families, etc. So essentially, a safe place for people and and disenfranchised people of color to meet each other at this playground. Well, there was a skit about this a couple of years ago, which is you know we had Jim Crow laws, which is like there's time for whites there's a time for blacks so we literally have a situation now it doesn't say reuters fact checked this reuters reports that there was no never nobody was ever not allowed to go but it did designate a night for a certain group of people which seems to be like progress on one end but from the horseshoe it ends up being this is like a jim crowy kind of law like on wednesdays objectively the worst day of second worst day of the week tuesday is the worst day of the week tuesday is, tuesday is horseshit that's why that's why we released this podcast Correct. on tuesdays literally guys, the exact reason we need a break we know you need a break it's just yeah. it's just the worst so yes it's exactly right so on wednesdays they're gonna have a night for a group of people that have been marginalized and it seems like your heart's in the right place but what you end up with and this is this the point of the like saturday night livey skit i watched was like yeah let's keep whites and non-whites separate and like you the fact of what ends up happening here seems like racial segregation. And that's not what's intended here. We should go back to the unintended consequences. I think a lot of the horseshoe stuff is unintended consequences. You're so blinded by your thing. You don't realize like, oh, what I, for whatever reason, like the squad vote didn't vote for it and Matt Gates didn't vote for it. Doesn't fucking matter. What happened was you didn't vote for it. Same thing here. It doesn't matter if they're trying to keep uh, white children and non-white children away from each other. They did. That is what happened. That is what, like we did not integrate for whatever the motive ended up being. Um, and the, the writers did fact check it in, in the school, talked to them as like they were approached by families that thought this would be a good idea. So, I mean, let's listen to you. You are a public servant. If people in your community want something and you have the capability to do it, you have to listen to it. Like that's the school. I don't blame the school at all. Apparently there's PTA people that wanted to do it. Regardless, we are now in a situation where there seems like racial discrimination happening and it doesn't matter why, but it is happening. So I don't know if that's still happening. That was like three years ago. Two years ago, what year is it? I don't know. Twenty twenty three. Yeah, that was, dude, that was like that was like three years. Yeah, we're we're coming up on uh, on three years since uh, the murder of George Floyd when the country was officially torn asunder. Mm-hmm. Well, and, but this uh, is this is um, what well, St. Patrick's Day was the Boston was the only big city that didn't shut down St. Patty's Day, right? Oh yeah, for the COVID. Yeah, yeah. man, those are some times. But I, 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 what what I think I think issues like this, and I think other issues like questions about social safety nets and how governments create incentives <clears throat> and motivate people to behave in ways that contribute to the common good. All of these examples that we're discussing, except for really the Cobra effect, all of these examples go to show how complex and difficult the policymaking process is yeah. and how much need there, how much latitude is critical for making good, responsible decisions that don't generate harmful unintended consequences. I mean, nobody wants to make the situation worse. What they do want is to create uh, what they think their version of like a better world is or what a better policy is. I mean, you know, in some cases, people, what that better world means is like life is better for me because I get more money or because I get more power or whatever right. the case is. But the point is that 
interests are in conflict. There isn't a harmony of interests. And that's why game theory as a model is so useful because it can help people wade through a incredibly complex web of individual interests, group interests, different incentives, different punishments, possible unintended consequences, and like defining where the system boundaries are versus when we need to like open the borders and, and be more uh, comprehensive in approach to solving specific problems. Uh, you know, the horseshoe theory is a good model for kind of like understanding how that behavior works, but that doesn't mean that it's like, oh, I know the horseshoe theory, so I know what good policymaking yeah. looks like. I understand unintended consequences, so all of a sudden I know what the solution is for all our social problems or any and it really yeah. does like it, it to me it underscores how critical it is to have meaningful thoughtful discussion about complex issues free from uh with, with among people who are baseline educated about like what their biases are what the biases of others are and yeah have the a, reason a game theory is so helpful like, it's so helpful because you can predict what people should do if they didn't have any moral implications at all. If they were animals and they were just doing the thing that they should do, what would they do? That will give you a baseline to like, okay, well then, because if, 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 you, if you simply approach the cobra problem uh, from that aspect, you'd be like, oh, well, they're going to fuck around, so let's just pay a guy to do it. And that would be the cheaper situation and they wouldn't have done all this thing. And I'm sure that it cost money. I'm sure people died. I'm sure like a bad things happened to animals. I'm sure it was oh, shitty. Yeah. I'm, and, and as a result, like sometimes you just sit at the chessboard and you just need to shut up and think. Like, just like, let's just think about this deeply. Even if you don't consider other people, like, how will this impact everything? What? See the whole board. For example, Chris, one unintended consequence of British colonialization and alcoholism is now a bunch of people that look like me pretend that IPAs are good. It, it, look, <laughs> they had their moment in the sun, and that moment is gone. Uh, it's okay to have an IPA, but it's not okay to talk about an IPA. Yeah, it just it's, isn't. I will cut my grass next time I have a lawn, and then I will put that in beer and pretend that I like it and wear my clear-rimmed glasses. Chris. Nick, we got a real-life example of the Cobra problem playing itself out. Do it. November, the Smithsonian. Florida teen wins $10,000 for hunting invasive pythons. That's right. This happened in Florida. <laughs> It always does, man. It always does.